Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Hello and welcome to In Love With Romance at Sydney Writers' Festival. My name's Rudy Bremer and when I'm not on stage, I'm the host of Away on Radio National, which is an Indigenous arts and culture program on ABC Radio. Um, more importantly, though, I'm a Gamilaroi woman with family ties to Pilliga in northwest New South Wales. And today I'll be talking with three authors whose writing celebrates love in all its forms. And to that end, acknowledging country is an act of love. For Blackfellas, it's how we honour and pay respect to this land that cares for us. I've been privileged enough to spend much of my life learning and working here and I want to pay respects to Gadigal country, to the elders, past and present. I'd also like to extend that respect to other First Nations people here in the room today. And this is not something I normally do, but I, I think we're in a time where I want to take a moment to acknowledge that the past few weeks have been particularly tough for Blackfellas. Working at the ABC, I think it's important for me to say I stand with Stan Grant as both a colleague and a black follower. What, thank you. What he's been facing is not unique. In, it is only unique in terms of volume, in terms of the volume of the conversation. No one should be racially abused for doing their job, and I can only hope that this truly is a line in the sand. So I understand that this might seem like, a like an odd tangent when you've come here to hear about romance novels. Trust me, we're getting there. <laughs> but as you'll hear, love is nothing if not political. When your love and your love and the love in your community is rarely celebrated, the choice to change that is nothing short of radical. So with that in mind, please allow me to introduce our writers today. Saman Shard is the author of The Matchmaker. She's a third, a third culture kid. And if you're a fan of Nalini Singh's contemporary romances like I am, but you wished that they were set in Sydney, Saman has got you covered. <laughs> um, Yvonne Weldon is a Wiradjuri woman, she's down the end there, is a Wiradjuri woman from the waters of the Clare and Murrumbidgee rivers. I'm going to do a very ABC thing and say that I have a relationship with Yvonne. She's known me since I was In my whole life. <laughs> yeah, before you were born. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and... 67 Days, her book, is what's sometimes called a recency. So in terms of romance novels, if you have a historical and it's set, like, more recent than, you know, like the way, way past, um, sometimes referred to as a recency. And Yvonne's book is set here in Redfern in the 1990s. Turns out that's historical now. <laughs> I'm so sorry to all of us. <laughs> um, so if you like your romance novels to be gender bent, uh, sorry, genre bending with a side of interesting socio-political context, 67 Days might be your book. And in the middle here is Dr. Freya Mask, who writes stories full of magic, blood, and as much kissing as she can get away with. <laughs> 
Now, if you liked A Marvelous Light by Freya Moss, um, you probably know that you should check out her most recent release, A Restless Truth. Um, please join me in welcoming. <laughs> okay, I've already set us on this path, so I'm keen to let someone else talk. Saman, your novel, The Matchmaker, follows Seyma, uh, a young woman who works as a matchmaker here in Sydney arranging marriages. But what prompted you to tell that story? Well, mostly I was writing about uh, something that I hadn't seen before in literature. I hadn't seen my um, community represented. I hadn't seen the Sydney that I know represented. You know, like a lot of the Western suburbs uh, don't uh, form part of our literary canon in the way that I know it, especially the now. Uh, so I really wanted to try and, you know, bring that to life and and just give a different perspective to the kind of romance that we always, that we're used to seeing, right? Uh, which is not two brown people who come from a Pakistani background uh, falling in love. And also, I guess in a way, showing that even though my two protagonists come from a similar background, we are not a monolith. We are uh, very different within our communities, within our societies. So, uh, you know, so you've got Cal, you've got Saima, and Saima's very much, uh, you know, like related, you know, like very much in touch with her community, whereas Cal is, and Cal is kind of like a third culture kid like me. Uh, but somehow they, they make their way to each other and, you know, magic happens. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I feel like this theme of telling stories that you don't necessarily get to see often resonates with each of you. Um, do you want to, Freya, do you want to tell me what prompted you to write... Yeah, so A Restless Truth is historical romance. It's set in the Edwardian era. Well, I was going to say in England. The first book, A Marvelous Light, is set in England. This one is set on an ocean liner at the time of the Titanic. So it's set between England and America over the six days of the voyage. And what prompted me to write this series, first A Marvelous Light and then A Restless Truth, was a similar feeling of wanting to add to what is now a fairly established but still in the scheme of things, quite new sense of queer romance and especially queer historical romance to show that people have always existed. Queer people like myself did exist and did find love and happiness and you don't have to tell a tragedy or a, something that's just fraught with angst. You can have the angst, but you can also have the happiness. And I also wanted to tell a story that I found fun. So there's murder in it, there's magic in it, there's romance in it, there's a menagerie loose on an ocean liner in it. Uh, and on a more character level, what prompted me to write this one, the two main characters, Maud and Violet, I was interested in the idea of a romance between someone who always tells the truth and who values truth in all things because of how she was brought up and some things about her upbringing that she's reacting against, and somebody who is a performer, who lies all the time, who builds up layers of performance in the way that she presents herself to the world. And can you actually have a romance between a liar and a truth teller? Someone who's always digging for the real and someone who relies on her layers of performance. So that was what, that was the core that got that book started. And even what was the core that got you started? I actually wasn't writing this book. I mean, it was... Um I wanted to write something and I will hopefully get back to that something um, at some point uh, in the near future. But uh, 
This book specifically, it was more, um, I used to stay up quite late when I had my children at school and I um, would stay up and once everyone was in bed, watch a little bit of trash TV of some sort, sort of like something just to chill out for, um, from a very busy day and a very busy day that would happen uh, in the, the coming days. Um, and so my payment to myself was that I had to write at least 500 words. That was my deal that I thought, well, if I'm going to stay up, you have to do something productive before you do something uh, uh, mind-numbing, I think is probably the term. Um, and so my deal with myself was to write these 500 words and um, I was writing something completely different. It's based um, in the 1940s to the 1970s across Radri country, uh, which is my country. And um, and so for me, the, the book, uh, the first book, which I hope to uh, finish in the next few months, um, was based on a, um, a two-liner. One, one of the chapters was based on a two-liner that I heard when I was a child and I sort of made this story out of, out of that. And it's actually about my great-grandmother and my great-uncle. And when I finished writing that chapter, he passed away and I was really quite distressed. I thought, oh my goodness, like, what have I done? Uh, as if I had some impact. And, and so I literally put that pen down and, pick up, and picked up another one. And I started to just write about fun things from the 90s when I sort of entered into sort of adulthood, sort of kind of. And, um, and I really uh, was just writing bits and pieces. Um, and as I continued to write by paying myself that, those 500 words, those words grew. Um, and, and 67 Days came out of that. Mm. Um, when did you realise 67 Days was a romance? Because you've, you've said that you've kind of accidentally written yes. a book. Yeah. yeah. I think as I continued to, um, the characters started to evolve, I thought, wow, this is certainly going in the direction that I did not anticipate. Um, it, 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 it wrote itself really in, in, in the love, I think. And I think uh, one of the key parts for me is that uh, my people and, you know, um, very similar as well, is that my people are not represented in the ways that I think that we should be. But also there's often a, a big mystery about First Nations people and there are hundreds of different nations across the country. But um, being a Wiradjuri woman um, and thinking about my children and my future grandchildren, which I have two of them now, I really wanted to make sure that the mystery was taken out of it, but also the acceptance needed to be um, a part of our everyday. And so um, as it became, uh, continued to grow, the, for me, the best part of uh, that sharing is actually to try and do it with love. And I think we need to have more of it in our world. Yeah. Uh, Freya, a restless truth sits within a couple of genres. You've got magic, murder and kissing, a real triple threat. <laughs> um, when you sit down to write, which element of the story is kind of at the forefront? What genre are you thinking? You'll be entirely unsurprised to hear that it depends. <laughs> uh, so I am a writer who sits very much in a mushy genre space. And this was made very clear to me at the beginning of my writing career when I wrote a book. I was so proud of it. I'd written my first ever book and I got an agent with it and we couldn't sell it because all the romance publishers said, this isn't a romance, this is a fantasy novel. And all the fantasy places said, 
this isn't a fantasy novel, this is a romance novel. And my agent politely came to me and said, Freya, why don't you pick a genre and <laughs> deliberately write for that? And I decided that I wanted to have a career in science fiction and fantasy. And so I quite deliberately came up with a fantasy trilogy. But because I also knew that I wanted to write queer romance, I was also writing something that's very common in historical romance, which is a linked series of romances. Book one is one couple, book two is another couple, book three is another couple again. And so I deliberately planned a fantasy trilogy that had a plot that didn't require the romances in order to make sense, but the romances held each book together and I built up a family of people who had found one another and came together so that by the time we hit book three, we've got a whole ensemble cast. So I think when I'm planning, I'm thinking, what is the plot? How am I bringing these beats together? When I'm planning an individual book, I'm thinking, how do I make this romance plot work? Uh, and when I'm writing on the prose level, I'm not thinking about any of that whatsoever. It's just full speed ahead, pour everything onto the page. <laughs> well, I mean, this is kind of for anyone who feels like jumping in, but do you think that having that label of a romance genre and the conventions that kind of go with that, do you think that affects how you're writing at all? Um, well, I think the thing with romance is that it's got very specific tropes that you need to hit, and I, I really discovered that as I was uh, writing a romance. Um, but uh, what I love about romance now is how it's changed so much. So you are really um, putting a lot of different stories and um, characters, but also place that we might not have necessarily seen previously. So, you know, just today you can see like how varied our three books are, but are all within the genre of romance. Um, and I think what ultimately for me anyway, was that um, writing a rom-com was to bring a little bit of joy to people. And, and, you know, if this kind of takes you away from like, there's so much horror going on in our news. If this just takes you away from it for a little bit, then my job is done. But at the same time, it's kind of giving you a, an insight into a community and a culture that uh, a lot of people, as I've discovered, don't really know much about. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's not as um, it's not the, the same genre that people thought it was. And maybe, you know, I think it's really developed, uh, especially in recent years, to being something quite deeper. But at the heart of it, yes, there's love, there's joy, and hopefully a bit of laughs as well. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I don't know about anybody else, but no matter what I'm reading, the world building is kind of, it's really important because if that feels mushy, I'm not super invested in the rest of it. Um, Freya, you've layered fantasy on top of an Edwardian historical setting. So I'm gonna start with you and see how do you make a world feel real when magic exists? You're right in talking about it as layering because I think like any historical writer, I did the research first to say, all right, I'm setting this in a particular time in a particular place. And what I'm looking for is everyday colour. 
you know, I can get an idea of what the big pictures of the political situation was, but what you really want to know is what are these people having for breakfast? And apparently the answer in Edwardian England is kidney omelettes. Mm. <laughs> Delightful. Delicious. Yes. Uh, and especially with this book, I did a lot of research about ocean liners at this time. And because of the Titanic's existence, there is a lot of detail out there about specifically what these places were like. What was their setup? How much did it cost to go to the gymnasium? What were the Turkish baths on board the Titanic actually like? And so I could pick and choose in terms of how much very specific detail I wanted to layer in. But because I am writing historical fantasy rather than pure historical, I had a bit more leeway than your average historical writer. So I give myself what I call my anachronism budget, and I say, all right, this is not the real Edwardian era. This is a version of it where magic exists and is hidden from people. So there is a society of magicians who exist uh, that most people don't know about. And the first book is about somebody stumbling into that world by accident. And by the time we hit book two, we're in the middle of a conspiracy and everyone's kind of aware what's going on. But there's still an element of having to keep things secret from most of the people on this ship. And so... I allowed myself that little bit of leeway of saying, well, if magic exists, what would be different? And if that can be a bit different, maybe I can ignore the exact etymology of which decade this word was first introduced into English. If I think it's the right word, I'm going to allow myself to slide that one in because I think fantasy readers are a little more forgiving than your average pure historical reader. I have not received any angry emails yet about something that I've gotten wrong. I'm sure it's going to happen at some point. Uh, but I wanted that world to feel real, to feel original with the magic. And then I wanted my characters to feel like they had organically grown up within that world, but were still engaging to a modern audience. So it was a lot of fun doing that world building. I started with the research and then the magic grew as I wrote. Yvonne, mm -hmm. I think you had a different challenge in that you've written a very real world mm -hmm. that people in this room will be able to recognize and literally walk the streets of where you've written. Mm -hmm. um, how much research or how, how much were you kind of thinking about making 1990s Sydney like real on the page? Oh, look, I think when, when I wrote this, um, I'm very different to, um, nothing was planned. It was more, uh, it, it evolved in its own way. I think that, um, Yes, definitely the characters, um, you know, I think she even, Evie, the main uh, protagonist, is, you know, she parks up the road from here. Um, and um, so there are parts of the, the streets around here that that I have walked or certainly the characters have uh, more to the point. But I think that when I think about those times and... Uh, definitely from my own reflection or own memories and then going back to look at what that, you know, just looking up online uh, some of the photos of the times and trying to remember some of the fashion of the times and, and the music and and uh, even, you know, the movies of, of the days, um, that, which I try to capture uh, in the book. But uh, for me, I think the it, it, it colours it in in a very different way and it brings the characters and the world um, alive because it exists. Um, and one of the key parts of the novel for me was actually making sure that people that are important uh, in my life, you know, still here today and those that I've lost, I wanted them to be represented in words because they mattered then, they matter now and they'll matter into the future. 
um, and that everything is changing. I mean, life is about change, but how do we actually recognise that? And I think in 67 days, um, it captures some, you know, a snippet in, 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 in the 90s, you know, 67 days in the 90s. Um, but, and what does that do for us today? Does it change um, us in a positive or, or are we, you know, still addressing things today or trying to address those things today that have never been addressed? Mm. Um, Simone, I have like a bit of a controversial question for you in that... Um because you've also written a, a world that people can absolutely walk, but does that does it matter? Do we need to be able to recognise real Sydney on the page? Does it help? Do you know what's funny is that even though I recognise that Sydney, a lot of people don't, and I think that is that was uh, that worked in my favour actually because um, you know there's there's parts of Sydney that you know. If you know Sydney, we kind of kind of stick to our boundaries. We stay within our suburbs, and uh, and a lot of people don't travel um, further. Like you know, and I and I mean just you know, if if you go to Auburn, it's going to be very different to Campbelltown. It's going to be very different to Cabramatta, um, very different to Lakemba. And these are like I honestly really recommend just doing that because you just get an insight into how communities live, you know, and. For me, in this book, because I have family spread out all across Sydney, uh, I just wanted to really give people a little tour guide of of these areas. But no, look, it doesn't matter. Like I could, I could look. No, hang on. I know. Before, I was going to say before, when you say it doesn't matter. On, you, this is not. On. If I write something really terrible that is not true about like Kemba, people will let me know. <laughs> you know. So, uh, so it it does matter in my book, but I think. Obviously, it's fiction. You know, you have leeway. You can um, make it, colour it in the way that you know these places to be um, and hope that people go along for the ride with you. Um, and especially, you know, because it's it's a romantic comedy, you know. So I think people are much more generous in, in what they, you know, I'm not writing a historical uh, fiction here or non-fiction. So, yeah, I think... I think it should be okay, you know, to colour it a bit more than it might actually be. I also wanted to say it's um, it's really based on my experience and everyone has different experiences of these places um, and places so important to, to so many of us. So uh, it's just from where I come from, really. I'm also thinking about the fact that, you know, um, like an author like Sally Thorne wrote The Hating Game and it has kind of, it, it's set in this nebulous kind of space. And when you read that book, I mean, I know that Freya, you absolutely, you clocked that. I didn't. I I made assumptions and I thought I knew where it was set and then found out it doesn't have a setting. And so I'm, <laughs> I'm curious about like, when you, like what what does having no setting or having like a setting that people can put their own assumptions onto. What does that do? Does it help? Does it hinder? <laughs> All right, well, yeah, we had a conversation about this backstage, <laughs> of this particular book, The Hating Game. Yeah, I mean, we can talk more broadly yeah, more about broadly. other people. So I think it depends what you're trying to do. And I think commercially speaking, if you have something without a very clear setting, then it has broader overseas appeal. Speaking as a, an Australian writer who likes to write 
I have written a couple of Australian set contemporary romances. They are proving hard to sell overseas. Uh, and I, I personally really like the feeling of specificity that grows a character. What references do they make inside their head? How are they shaped by where they grew up and the places that they've been and the people around them? But it depends what you're looking for in the romance. And if you have a place that, where the setting is less important, it really just becomes all about the characters at the center of the romance and how they interact with each other and everything is stripped away and you end up with a very efficient romance because it really just says there is other stuff in these people's lives but none of it matters as much as what is happening between these two people in this one room. And that is a way of doing a romance that I think is very effective. It's just a different sort of romance, the one that shows you these people deeply entrenched in their very specific context. And I think it also comes back to, you know, like you just said, like, what are you looking for in a romance? Are you looking just to really just get that, that hit, you know, of love and those butterflies? Or is it something broader? I mean, are you doing it to discover um, another place, you know, uh, which I, yeah, it, it's really dependent on how you approach work. But I think for me, what makes it interesting reading a book is just that it introduces me to a new place that I perhaps didn't really know about beforehand. Mm. One of the things I really liked about your book, Yvonne, was that you managed to do both. You had this very specific place and time, but you were so deep in the main character's head and she expressed this feeling of new love as it feels like we're in our own world. Mm. Nothing exists outside me and this person I've just met. So that was a really good balancing act, I thought. Yeah, thanks. I think, I mean, what, the other part of it is that there is lived experience. There are real people. And so that truth-telling and the truth of the era had to be very clear in the storyline as well. And I, I, when I, I was thinking about it the other day, when initially when I wrote it, um, it was in third person. It was completely different to what it was when I um when I did uh, finish it, but I but I think about those characters and what they represented of their time um, in present day, um, and still existing in so many other people's minds that lived in those days as well, or were actually very familiar uh, from what Redfern Street looked like, um, Redfern Train Station, or, or you know Sydney Uni. Um, well, look, no matter what genre we're talking about, there's also always going to be tropes, which is basically a common theme or device readers and writers come to know and love. Um, Saman, I know that 90s rom-coms were a big influence on you. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about... Yeah, gosh, how good were 90s rom-coms, right? Like, <laughs> I... Uh, I, I I'm really excited about the fact that we are seeing a renaissance of rom-coms, but they are different from what I, you know, saw in the 90s, um, which was very, very much like two white people, heterosexuals coming together. And, and now we're seeing um, within romance just so many different variations of love, which is the best part of, you know, of just seeing yourself represented so that the way you feel and, you know, your way of coming together is is common in many ways and universal. But, yeah, look, um, you know, never been kissed by Drew Barrymore. Like, how, uh, you know, and, uh, and funnily enough, like, my daughter is now... Um, kind of old enough to watch some of these and she's um and when I watch it with her 
I'm like, oh gosh, like I watched this when I was quite young, but this is really not appropriate. You know, at the time I thought it was appropriate, but now watching it going, I don't know if you should be watching this, you know, because we kind of got away with a lot in the 90s uh, that, you know, now might be um, not uh, PC. I don't know. I don't know. But, <laughs> but like, I think that's kind of where I came from, which is uh, I love that unique blend of of falling in love, but also making people laugh and entertaining people, you know, and I, uh, and, and just kind of forgetting day-to-day uh, -day lives for just that brief moment and going into this whole other journey and really rooting for characters, you know, and that's, I think, where it comes to, to character as well, is that you really need to be invested in the, in the two people who are, you know, ultimately, hopefully getting together. Um, and, 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 and then how do you sort of set that world around them, you know? So that kind of, I think, falls back to those 90s, 90s comedies. Uh, Freya, I did some sleuthing and I discovered that the favorite, your favorite trope included in A Restless Truth is what you tweeted as sex lessons. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to explain oh. what, what oh, that Thank means. you for asking. I was You're sitting so here welcome. thinking, am I allowed to talk about the sex Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So you're absolutely right that romance as a genre loves its tropes. And it's because you can look at something and say, this is enemies to lovers. This is fake dating. And you kind of know the backbone of the story. And the interest is, I know what emotional hits I'm going to get from that. So when I was putting together A Restless Truth, I was thinking, what kind of tropes do I want to hit? I'll get to sex lessons in a second. Uh, the main ones that I used to pull the romance together were forced proximity, which is if you have two people who haven't met yet and you want them to connect intimately, give them a shared project with a deadline. <laughs> and so they have a murder mystery to solve in the six days on this boat that has all these magical elements to it as well. And so they are forced to work together in a way that exposes their good parts, their flaws, you know, really shows you the emotional truth of someone under stress so that when they start to have feelings for each other, there's a little bit of the, well, it's a romance, but also it has only been a few days, but they have really seen each other at both their best and their worst. I was also playing a little bit with a very historical romance trope, which is the experienced rake and the ingenue. So Maud is a, a young woman who's just discovering her sexuality and is very keen to explore it in as much vigorous detail as possible. Uh, and Maud is someone who's a little bit older, a little bit more experienced and much more wary of her place in the world. And I wanted to take that trope of someone who's brash and young and enthusiastic, but a bit innocent and someone who's more experienced and then start to twist it as the book goes across because of the kind of people they are. Sex lessons is something that arose out of that and it is something that you see a lot in romances where it comes to this idea of, especially in historicals, we're just doing this, it's only physical, I'm just going to teach you some of my experience so that you become more worldly, very no strings attached, we're definitely not going to fall in love, we're just going to have a lot of sex. Uh, and of course, being a romance novel, that never goes the way that the characters expect. Uh, but it's a very specific romance arc that I really like reading. And it was my first time playing with it in this particular context. And I had great fun. Sexual, sexually transmitted feelings yes. is another way that it is sometimes <laughs> described. 
Avon Christie, sixty-seven days. It's it's a it's a fictional novel, but you're writing in reference like to real people, real events, and real places. When you're fictionalizing that, how are you tackling like still hitting those sort of expected like beats in a romance novel of the meet cute and the breakup, the like, you know, like how are you thinking about that? I wasn't. <laughs> um, I, I, the story, I mean, there was key parts of the story that once I started, I know, I, I start, I knew in my spirit of what I wanted to include. Um, for me, it was clearly about honouring um, so many that haven't been honoured. Um, I, I, I asked my parents, my elders on could I use their actual names or, you know, I wanted to capture this or could I include parts of a cultural practice or our own um, belief systems in it so it wasn't disrespectful and dishonourable, but also I wanted to do that to, to share for the very reason of sharing of what we have not. Um, I It was difficult, like there were parts where I, I was asked in the editorial process, um, we should expand on this. And I just said, no, we're not. This is out of bounds. You know, some of these things, uh, you know, culturally are out of bounds. But there was also parts of it when I think about how it did evolve and I knew nothing. I still know nothing about writing a book, I can tell you right now. And uh, when I had a conversation, my my. Uh, manuscript and published manuscript was shortlisted for the Queensland Literary Awards a lot of a few years back, and um, and I spoke to someone. I said, "Oh, you know how you know fiction? How you go? You know how did you do it?" And he said, oh, "I could never write fiction. It's so structured and it's very rigid, and you know, and there's all of these rules." And I thought, "Oh, really? Like I, I that's <laughs> what, what? What? Like I didn't know that." And so, and then when I actually sort of um, with the shortlisting, I was granted a scholarship and you could have used it in a range of ways. And I decided to, again, so I had no idea, to get an ed editorial mentor. And uh, a very brilliant lady, uh, Bernadette Foley, I was put, you know, she was put on my path and uh, we came together and learnt so much from that process. And I understood about this arc and, well, I don't know if I know it, but I sort of understand a little bit about it. But And... And so how um, the novel changed in its journey, but so did the characters and so did some of the lessons and all of that. And I think that, you know, there's so much a part of our lives that we we learn from that we don't intend to, um, but we may pick up a book or we may have a conversation with someone or we may work with someone that is going to teach us something or people come into our lives um, a long time ago and remain and some that don't and I think that's a part of the the beauty of sharing um, whether it be through fiction or life or or a combination of that and I certainly tried to do that in in this world uh, in terms of 67 days but also make it present um, in, in the present world too. So we are talking about romance novels and for most people that means there's a guaranteed happy ending. Saman, how did you balance the romantic and the dramatic tensions in The Matchmaker when we already kind of know the, the ending? Like, we know where we're going to 
get to. Yeah, you know, one thing that I found writing a romance comedy, and this isn't the first book I've written, like I've, I've written a couple of books that didn't get published, which were very straight literary books, was that there is a lot of art involved in writing something that is romantic, but also where you have to balance the dramatic part of it. And it's, uh, it's very, very subtle. So, you know, in, in the book, um, Simon's got a traumatic event that happens to her in her past. And how much do I delve into that without dragging the whole book down? And how much do I refer to it? Um, and it's, it's the same for, for both characters. You know, they, they both come from uh, uh, some, some kind of trauma with Cal. It's, it's his relationship with his father. And so it's a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real balancing act. And that's what I found. And it took me almost two years editing this book. And I think the reason why it took such a long time was to to sort of, you know, walk that tightrope of making it fun and funny and still a romantic comedy, but also including the elements of it that are, were important to me, um, including what it means to be an immigrant kid living in this country, you know, and, and the differences between first-generation immigrants and second-generation immigrants and how, how do you sort of bring all those really quite big and meaty topics um, as well as, you know, keep by the conventions of what is ultimately a romance. So it's, um, it's, it's really tricky. And I think more than anything, I mean, my, my, my career is, is writing. You know, uh, it just makes you a better writer more than anything else. You know, working on this, editing it and making it um, like a journey that, um, that people get lots of different things from was 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 great it was a great experience for me and and I and I think I learned a lot as well uh, and, and so there's a real art form I'm really really honestly people don't realize how hard it is until you actually do it and I'm so impressed people do it so amazing oh, I completely agree I think like a really well crafted romance often just like leaves me in awe at how well it's done because it's such an emotive genre and you are really trying to get people to buy in with their emotions. And for that reason, I think that balance between the previous trauma and the angst and the, the, where people are at the beginning is really important because you can write a love story between someone whose life is basically fine and happy and pleasant and somebody else who's also fine and happy and pleasant and they fall in love and everything's fine. But, you know, we are more interested in the wounds that people are carrying around with them from their past and... What is it that has made them think that love is not for them or that they don't deserve it or that everyone is going to leave them eventually? And what is the wound that this other person has and how is that standing in their way? And you're, you're writing a very careful back and forth of emotional progression that is bringing two people to a point where they can say, yes, I deserve happiness. And that's why it's such a popular and long-standing genre and why it's so hard to do well because it's about those wounds and where we bring ourselves to a point of deserving happiness. I was just going to add like I love that wounds you know like it, it, it's very true but um, but this is also a comedy right <laughs> so, it's like as much as they are wounded um, I also want to make people laugh you know and so uh, so that's the tricky that's the tricky bit you know and I and and and, and when you're writing comedy you honestly, because everyone's got such a different sense of humor, you just don't know if it's going to land or not. And, and the comedy is actually quite challenging. And I, I think I'm glad that it, it's, from what I've heard, it's landed for people. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Avon without giving things away. Why do you think there's scope for kind of a broader idea of what it means to find your happily ever after, particularly thinking about the fact that Evie is a young-ish protagonist? I think she's 19 Mm. at the start. Do you think there's scope for a broader idea of what it means to have like a happy ending? Look, I think that all of our worlds are, you know, not always happily ever after, you know, whether it's working or children or, you know, um, partners and everything else in between. I think that, um, you know, having a broad escape, I was very worried about this novel because I thought I had so much of, you know, um, so many other issues included into it. So then would it fit any genre? And and there was conversations, you know, uh, with my agent, uh, Selway Anthony, and and even with Bernadette Foley, we spoke about, you know, where where the the right fit was. Um, but when I think about the characters and the journey and some of the messaging and and you know definitely I sort of bit of a put of a disclaimer or you know sort of um, at, at the beginning of the novel so that people if there was triggers that they you know to be mindful of that and I was very concerned about anyone to pick it up um, that I didn't want to uh, affect them in a negative way um, the the novel. And all of the issues that are covered in it is about exploring who we are as individuals, who we are as people, but what difference we can make to each other. And certainly, you know, as you started off talking about um, Stan and the impact um, beyond anyone's views, you know, online or in person, is that we all have, we should actually have the opportunity to make others feel okay, not worse. And um, when I think about that era and the era that we're, you know, the times we're living in today and what that's going to mean for us in 10 years' time, how much have we grown? And I think there are parts of us that we have uh, certainly been more inclusive of my people but not always accepted in that same way. And, And same with love. I think that, you know, some of the fact that we've got... Um, you know, LGBTQI plus being included in some of aspects of our world, whereas before it was just completely shunned. And there's parts of my book that I know that some Aboriginal communities may not necessarily like it because I'm addressing taboos. Um, if we don't start to do that together, we just won't. And I think it's it's about time that we do. Yeah. Um, Freya, I mean, this also brings up, like, you've you've written a novel that has a queer couple. Um, what does a queer happily ever after look like in a time and place that's not necessarily safe for queer folks? That's something I think is very dependent on the book that's being written. And, like, some of my favourite works of, you know, historical queer literature are ones that are looking at that idea of what happily ever after can look like in a time and a place. So E.M. Forster's Maurice, which is probably the first Edwardian uh, queer, was actually only published posthumously because it was one of the first book works of queer fiction that had a romance that ended happily with two men 
agreeing to dedicate their lives to each other and living together. And that, at the time, could not be published while he was alive. And, you know, Patricia Highsmith's The Price of Salt or Carol, again, was a very early forerunner in what can it look like, like if you go through these struggles and then end happily. Uh, but romance, capital R romance as a genre, has always been a space where those queer stories are kind of existing in the margins a little bit. They've always been there, but they have been a little bit more passed around and a bit more niche and definitely not part of the mainstream conversation of romance as a genre. And so for me, I feel like I am spoiled. I am writing and reading in a time when there is so much happening in this space. There's contemporary, there's paranormals, there's historicals of these happily ever afters for queer people. And for me, I wanted to show something that was again, on that edge of realism for the time period, but not saying, well, they're going to be miserable and enclosed and alone. I wanted to show, across the three books of these series, a family of people coming together because they have this in common, but they have it, they still have community. And I think that's always what's been missing sometimes from these stories is the predominant emotion has been one of loneliness and isolation because there is no known community, or if there is, it's existed in small spaces. So very deliberately writing this series, I wanted to give a group of queer people a community to exist within and to have their happy ever afters within because the love is what's important and it's not just I've found one person to love, it's I exist within a community and a family that loves me as well. And I think, I mean, this this kind of speaks to everyone's work here, is that it's not as if queer folk, black and brown folk, didn't exist in history. <laughs> like, we definitely did. And we definitely found love and we definitely found community. And there's something really like profound and, and lovely about being able to like write into that, I think, in all of the different ways that each of you have. Um, I that's think, my deeply I think history honest. History is, uh, is um, you know, sort of a, a, a term that gets used but doesn't always get included. Um, you know, it, it, I, I do, I'm a bit of a crazy person, I have many different hats, but it, I'm the first Aboriginal councillor to be elected on the City of Sydney Council in its 180 year history. And um, and um, and in in my short time being on council, um, I think about and I, I'm not raising this about for about politics. I'm raising it about what we represent. Um, prior to getting to council, and certainly since. Um, I have been very invested, as I've included in my book, in, in, in and around here um, and what represents history and what it should be. And, um, you know, across our city we have statutes of many people. We've even got statutes of Trim the Cat. I think there's five of them, which is amazing, don't you think? A cat is represented. <laughs> But yet not one First Nations person is represented. There isn't any truth-telling in that history. There is no publicly funded statue of an Aboriginal person in this city, the first city of this country. And yet I put it up to council and it got voted down. 
they got voted down for a casting vote of the Lord Mayor. Now, this is where in 2023 we have a referendum, and again, this is not about politics, this is about inclusion. When we talk about history, where are we? Because where we are today is what we're going to reflect about tomorrow. And the reasons why I included so many aspects of the trailblazers that I was born into and I am of is in this book because they made those pathways for a different day today. And we have the opportunity to make a different day for tomorrow. And how are we doing that? Are we being inclusive? There are cultures. We have hundreds of cultures from this continent and we have hundreds of cultures from across the globe. How do we do that in an inclusive way? How do we do it with all of our diversity, all of our different choices? But how are we truly including? And I think that the varieties of authors and books that you have on stage here today, but also all of them in your own libraries, think about where does that sit for you? Where does it sit for your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren? Are we truly representing what we want to have, which is called inclusion? Look, I... Yeah, go on, clap it. <laughs> I'm almost sorry to continue because that would be such a lovely moment. Okay. <laughs> no, but we are. We've got a couple minutes left. Don't run away. Um, I've, I've written in my notes that this is the afterglow. Um, <laughs> and what that means is I'd love to know what each of you are uh, working on and doing next. Um, so I am working on another novel. Uh, <laughs> um, very, very much at the start of it. But also I have an audiobook out with Audible, which is also a romance, um, and it's called Love for Life. So if you, you know, if you like this, uh, but it's, that's very kind of different. It's romantic, but it's a family, it's a family romance, but also just working on, on screen projects and, um, and just continuing to write and get better. And, and this is what I say to anybody, because I know there's probably quite a lot of writers out here um, in this room, is just, um, you know, you, you kind of have to be a multi-hyphenate and you have to write in lots of different mediums. And wherever you get that opportunity to write, do it, because that just will keep improving your craft. And writing is a craft. And it's something that I have been pretty much doing my entire life. And I'm still learning every single day. And so, you know, whether I'm writing a novel or whether I'm writing a screenplay or a theatre play or an article, because I'm also a journalist, it's, um, it's really just improving you. And that's my, and I love, Yvonne, that you were, that had that 500 word you know, I was like, oh, I should, I should do that. Every time I sit back at night with Netflix, I was like, yeah, oh, yeah. I, 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 need, I need to do this 500 words, you know. It's now my guilt. Yeah, I exactly. Especially I do. when you have, you know, kids, which I, I, I you know, which I do. And it's 100% uh, can, it really resonates with me is finding that time. And I, that's the one thing that I hear from so many people is how do you find the time to write? You just do. And 500 words isn't that much. And it doesn't have to be a great 500 words. It's just our 500 words. 
Uh, I'm under a little bit of publishing secrets embargo to talk about what's happening next year and the year after that and the book that I'm writing at the moment because there's announcements happening later in the year. But the third book in this series, um, A Power Unbound, is coming out this November. And in the grand tradition of historical romance, you meet the main characters of the third book, so the people who will have their romance in that book, you meet them in this as some of the supporting characters. And if you have read much romance, you will recognise them on site as what is known as the industry as sequel bait. <laughs> uh, so that's it. Yeah, so the third book and the final book in this particular series, A Power Unbound, is coming out at the end of this year. Look, I actually think about writing every single day. Um, I don't necessarily do it. I've, um, it definitely is a Netflix guilt that I'm having <laughs> at the moment. Um, and, and I do that every single time I press a, a button uh, on a screen. But um, there, I, I need to get back to my, my first novel uh, or the first, you know, what I started to write first. Um, I think I'm probably halfway there. I do think about... Um, what I want to include in that um, from the eras of the 1940s to the 1970s and how does that link to present day and there is so many ties that um, that we either are continuing or we should have um, or we should not and I think that uh, I will work on that a little bit more I have uh, need some brain space to be able to do that and I struggle on any given day but I um, there is parts of uh, when I wrote uh, 67 days, I was resigned. To, I, I actually, which is quite crazy, I wrote it over eight weeks and um, 80,000 words over eight weeks is, is is quite insane. And I was working full time and on three boards and have three children. And, and, um, and so, yeah, it was quite insane, I must say, but, um, but it was a labour of love, more for the fact that I just wanted these characters to exist. I wanted them to be in the world. But I was also um, quite resigned to the fact that it may never have entered the world in terms of being published, and I was okay with that too. Um, I, there was parts of it that I, if it meant that only people in my family would read it, um, particularly where I uh, wrote about, you know, my elders um, and people I still cherish to this day, um, then that was going to be enough as well. And I think that uh, not writing for the ultimate aim to be published, but writing for, for yourself and what you're learning about yourself or what you would like others to learn, I think that's an important part of just sharing um, you know, sharing those words, whether they be on a on a paper, on a piece of paper, or on in a book, or in a podcast, or just sitting down having the yarn over, you know, over a, a cuppa. I think that it's uh, our connection and our internet connection is um, who we have always been, and I think we need to do more of it. Oh, my word count is feeling so shameful now. <laughs> I, I'm going I'm to do a little post-it note that says 500 words and put it on my TV remote. Yeah. <laughs> Pick it up. Yeah. <laughs> I've, spent, I've spent four weeks writing something that's 2,000 words. Right. Um, 
Uh, it takes me so nine boring. months to write a book. <laughs> nine months pretty predictably. There's a lot of, like, gestation jokes out there, but that's, that's how long it takes me to do a novel. But it took me just as many years to get it published. So, so and that's my point. I think it um, I was, it, it arrived as it should have um, and, and it arrived when it did. And and I think uh, for me it was about surrendering, surrendering more and accepting more but also engaging uh, more for the reasons that I need to. Yeah. Um, look, I, I think um, I'm going to leave it there. Please join me in thanking Yvonne, Freya and Saman. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.